Hi and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your hosts for this week, it's me, FG News Editor Olivia Midgley. And me, Farmers Guardian Editor Ben Briggs. We'll bring you a new episode of the Over the Farm Gate podcast every Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe, whether that's via Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure that you keep up to date with all the latest episodes. Coming up this week, we look at how the nation's shopping and eating habits have changed on lockdown and ask how the beef and sheep trade is doing after a turbulent few weeks. More on those later. First up though, and the Agriculture Bill came back to Parliament last week, but it wasn't without its controversy. Here's our Chief Reporter Abby Kay with a rundown of everything you need to know. You're still ploughing on and so are we. Get Farmers Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmers Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com forward slash subscriptions today. Last week, after three long years, the Agriculture Bill finally, for the first time, passed all of its initial stages of scrutiny in the House of Commons. This is a big win for the government, which needs the bill to become law by this summer if it is to stick to its original seven-year agricultural Brexit transition timetable due to begin in 2021, but the final Commons debates brought big disappointment for the farming industry. Farm groups, consumer organisations and green NGOs had all come together to urge MPs to vote for a key amendment to the Agriculture Bill, which would ban food imports which are not produced to domestic standards from coming into the UK. The change to the bill, put forward by the Chairman of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee, Neil Parrish, won cross-party support from Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, Plaid Cymru and the DUP, but was opposed by the government. Farming Minister Victoria Prentice told the House the Agriculture Bill was about domestic farming, not trade, and suggested the amendment would have unintended consequences if it were accepted, such as disrupting the supply of food into the UK, a point she made in more detail during earlier scrutiny of the legislation. She also claimed the amendment would prevent exports such as whisky and potatoes being sent to countries which the UK has a trade agreement with by virtue of its EU membership, as changing the rules for imports would mean a continuity deal could not be rolled over. In the end, 22 Conservative MPs rebelled against the whip and voted for the bill to be changed, including, mistakenly, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who apparently had problems with the new digital voting system. 15 more also abstained, but with the government's big majority, the numbers weren't enough and the amendment was defeated by 51 votes. This isn't quite the last chance saloon for farmers, though. The Agriculture Bill will now move to the House of Lords, where its likely similar amendments will be tabled. If those aren't accepted, the issue will be picked up again when the Trade Bill returns to Parliament, but without ministerial support, it looks as though a change in the law is unlikely. There may well be room for some kind of compromise, however, such as setting up a Trade and Food Commission to explore other ways to protect standards in trade deals, as the NFU has been calling for for over a year. But with EU trade talks underway and plans in the pipeline for others to begin with the US, Japan, New Zealand and Australia very soon, a body like this would need to move extremely quickly if it wanted to have any real influence over the UK's future trade policy. Abby Kay there. Now, for some insight on consumer buying trends and what's happening around the auction marts, it's over to Jez Fredenberg. It's fair to say that food has preoccupied the nation more than at perhaps any other time since the Second World War. So how has lockdown changed the way consumers have been behaving with food? 
Has it changed their priorities? Maybe even the way they think about food producers? Are those changes going to stick? And most importantly for farmers, what does it mean for what consumers want going forward? Joining me are Kim Malley and Steve Evans from AHDB's Consumer Insight team. Kim focuses on consumer behaviour in retail, while Steve focuses on behaviours at home. Here's Kim. March and pre-lockdown, which we are classifying as panic buying, was an extraordinary month um, in terms of grocery. Um, They've never seen anything like it. An extra £1.4 was spent on food and drink. And actually, a lot of categories benefited from this. 33 out of 34 food and drink categories saw growth. The fastest growing categories in supermarkets were long-life foods that really benefited. So things like canned fruit and vegetables, dried pasta, frozen chips. So as lockdown continued, did people's behaviours and priorities change? Yes, so growth has slowed as people are obviously less confident about going out and have actually been told to stay at home um, and people are therefore shopping less. So typically people shop 17 times a month, but this went down to 14 times a month post lockdown. But obviously people are still buying more food and drink as people are eating out more at home. So there's still a large number of categories that are seeing really significant growth, particularly beef, cheese, butter and fresh and frozen potatoes potatoes. Okay, so how has the lockdown changed, you know, where they're shopping and things like that? There's a feeling that people probably want to stay closer to home and therefore things that are in walking distance. And actually butchers have benefited as well. Um, if they're on the high street, people are able to walk to them quite quite easily. And also those two channels are, are typically smaller than a main supermarket as well, so might feel safer. And then along with that, the online channel has grown significantly. Steve, you obviously focus on what happens in the home. So the fact that none of us have been able to go out to our favourite restaurants or cafes, how has that changed what we're eating? Yeah, well, I mean, it has a fundamental change because in particular, sort of the meals that we eat out of home aren't necessarily going to be directly replicated in the home. Kantar estimated that we'd see about 503 million more meal occasions, which is a rise of about 38% of in-home meals. And now people are making sure that the products they buy have good shelf life, but also they're looking for inspiration. We've seen, we have seen a rise in home baking, freezing and cooking from scratch, which has a kind of accelerated probably some of the behaviour that we were seeing uh, pre-COVID. So what, what sorts of food do people actually eat, you know, at home that they don't eat out or what do they eat out that they maybe don't eat at home? In the wintertime, obviously, you've got things like stews and casseroles and, and things like that, but often uh, quick and easy to prepare um, using lots of cupboard ingredients, whereas uh, when they eat out of the home, you might go a little bit more extravagant and try, obviously, dishes that you wouldn't necessarily just replicate in the home, which is why when we've looked against retail sales, things like mints uh, sort of are really popular and has spiked really highly in retail performance because of the versatility and the types of meals that it can fit into, and the same for chicken breasts and things like that, so uh, often pro- people will turn to products that can fit into a variety of different dishes so they don't often buy products that just fit one meal occasion they'll often buy a range of products that will fit two or three different meals throughout the week so is it changing and, and this is a question for for both of you really is it changing our relationship with food do you think is it changing what we prioritize with food 
I think in terms of relationship with food, I think, you know, we have got closer or probably paid more attention about what the food, probably more conscious about what the food is we're buying and bringing into the home. But that's why we've, we think we've seen a spike in, in those kind of more functional benefits around sort of how long will the products last, the cost of the product, the, the quality. And I think we've, we also have to kind of throw a, the curveball into this, which is the probably the weight of economic uncertainty that's gathering uh, in this pandemic. So there's obviously people that are um, facing unknown sort of financial outcomes in terms of further down the line so we are starting to see uh, sort of economic and, and consumer confidence take a dip and that has a further impact in what kind of products people buy. So do those sorts of products have the same kind of values attached to them that consumers were prioritising before such as health and well-being and environmental credentials? Yeah, when we've when we've looked at it from um, sort of asking people about what's become more or less important, or also looking at the product drivers, we know that yeah, pre pre COVID that there was a significant rises in awareness in around the environmental and sustainability, and um, some of the wider sort of uh, sort of focus on on how food is produced. But we also so those those factors haven't gone away; they they still remain a, a critical to to the, for the long term competitiveness of the industry. But what we have seen is from a consumer element, certain elements almost bubble more to the surface. So probably more of the functional size about where can they get their product from? How long will it last? What is the price of that product and what dishes and how can I use it? So there's probably a sort of an immediate need for the consumer to kind of get those responses. But those other wider reputational things will be there in the long term. So it's important that the industry uh, very much uh, stays focused as well with those, but alongside addressing some of the more immediate short term kind of concerns um, around sort of the product benefits so in essence there's probably a need to make sure we satisfy uh, the consumer's needs currently but also in the backdrop making sure that we're uh, working and looking and communicating those long-term sort of um, uh, reputational things around the environment the sustainability to making sure that uh, we are obviously producing food that the consumer uh, can and wants to buy. I mean obviously we've also seen a real surge in people turning more to their local suppliers. And do you think that will stay? Firstly, I think that is because they're probably easier to get to. They may feel safer, but I do think there is definitely um, a strong feeling of localness with consumers right now. Um, and um, I'd pass on to Steve as he has more information on the consumer sentiment here. Yeah, we and certainly Kim, that's is stuff that we've seen in the um, tracker that we run. So each quarter we run a consumer tracker through YouGov, and the the local and uh, uh, sort of uh, British side of things has been quite a forefront. So there's also a good opportunity there for um, probably uh, people that might not have traditionally shopped in those uh, stores or outlets that will be doing so in the current uh, lockdown to actually then also look in the longer term about how how you might keep those consumers. Is it is it changing the way that people relate to farmers and their their local suppliers? You know, how is it changing the way that people trust the supply chain? Yeah, well, in terms of in, in terms of trust, we've uh, been looking closely at the market stats and, and done our own research as well as independent research that IGD have done, and that's shown that trust in the industry is really strong and has actually risen. And um, there's a lot of positivity towards uh, British farmers and growers. I think uh, in the long term, looking uh, beyond just uh, sort of country of origin or sort of that you are a British supplier would be making sure that at this time you're communicating to consumers about what the 
key selling point of your products are um, around sort of the quality of it, the safety of it, but also sort of, you know, into the detail of how you produced it, of the, the sort of local sustainability. And they're the sort of credentials that were pre-COVID also being quite critical for the consumer. So it's important to um, sort of make sure you're, you're telling them about those factors as well at this time. What would you say are the absolute key points that farmers need to understand about consumers as we kind of come out of lockdown and and therefore what might be you know potentially coming down the line through the supply chain in terms of demand I think from a retail point of view we need to understand what the um, what people are doing now under lockdown um, because it appears that if it's going to be quite a long time until the food service mar- um, starts to open up um, actually the behavior that we see now will continue for quite um, quite a few months um, so I'd say that one of the biggest issues is with um, the point that Steve made earlier about the fact that what people are buying to cook in home differs to what they typically eat out of home Um, and there's certain things out of home that they wouldn't feel confident cooking at home and um, therefore they don't typically buy so I suppose the carcass balance issues that we're we're seeing now um, will continue and I suppose um, farmers need to to think of ways to um, to address that issue okay anything um, anything else from you Steve any last points there I think uh, the critical thing for me would be as the consumer needs or situation changes is that we we put the right information in front of consumers and empower them to make the right choices about their um, sort of meal choices. It's making sure that they are sort of inspired and, and sort of gain confidence in how they might look to use that product um, in home. As we go further down uh, either shutdown or lockdown, uh, it's kind of giving them that inspiration about uh, when they are looking for uh, sort of a treat element or um, looking at how it might fit into a, a weekend or, or midweek meal it's about inspiring them and giving them ideas so they can obviously like look to cater for those increased in-home meals that we've talked about cla members own or manage around half of the rural land in england and wales and run more than 250 types of businesses The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this Covid crisis the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more go to www.cla.org.uk Kim Malley and Steve Evans from HDB's Consumer Insight team there talking with me earlier. As Lee mentioned, consumption of red meat has seen big changes during lockdown. So to find out more about how this is impacting livestock farmers and markets and what might be coming down the line, I talked to Neil Wilson, Executive Director of the Institute of Auctioneers and Appraisers in Scotland. Neil, welcome to the Farmer's Garden podcast. Where are you joining us from today? Hey, good morning. I'm joining you from uh, my home office, which is in uh, Thornhill, southwest Scotland. What's the latest in terms of the sorts of issues that you can see livestock markets and livestock farmers dealing with at the moment? When we look at the livestock markets, what we've seen from the prime animal perspective, certainly in terms of cattle, local butcher shops seem to have uh, had a really uh, positive impact from lockdown. So I think a lot more people seem to be shopping locally. Certainly the the butchers that come into our livestock markets to buy prime cattle 
uh, have been seeing an increased demand and uh, that has helped to uh, certainly to bolster the price of cattle uh, through the through the ring. Uh, that in comparison to uh, some of the deadweight prices uh, that you'll have seen a bit of a decline, which is some of which has been reversed over the last few days. But certainly through the ring for the local butchers, they have been paying well for good quality animals. And when you look at the sheep trade, we had a real fall very, very early on in the in the crisis where we came off at really high prices. But those through the ring, those those prices have recovered uh, as we've gone through uh, the sort of tail end of uh, last season's hogs and, and into new season lamb, which is, is again this week has, has picked up well in, in terms of price. So whilst uh, sales might be down, prices through the markets seem to be holding up well. Well, that's good news. I mean, how have, how have farmers been reacting to this then? Well, I think uh, farmers have been uh, reacting positively to this. The fact that uh, auction marts were able to remain open despite a lot of the restrictions in place. I mean, there's a you know there's a big uh, there's a lot of kudos goes to the market operators that they've been able uh, because of their professionalism to to keep these rings open, and that's that's enabled trade to uh, to happen freely, um, transparently, and competitively. Jay, so. From our point of view, farmers are really happy that that, that trade's been able to happen. Probably less happy that um, as sellers that unfortunately they can't get in to see their their livestock sold. You know, there's a lot of pride that goes into the production of this livestock and, and not being able to come in and accompany them through the ring to uh, to see them sold. I think it's been been disappointing a few people, but that's just unfortunately where we are with the current restrictions because of coronavirus. I mean, I, I know, like you say, you've had to put a lot of restrictions in place for the safety of everybody. What's the state of play in terms of what you're able to do at the moment and going forwards? So we were working very closely with Scottish Government and we have had a lot of support from, from Scottish Government around about um, how these restrictions look like. Uh, even just last week, we were able to to loosen off... Um, uh, one of the restrictions, which was around about um, over 70-year-olds being excluded from market. Now we have fallen in line completely with um, Scottish Government guidance, which is that they, it's highly recommended that they stay at home, but they will they will no longer be excluded from the market if it's part of their business. And they must go to the market to operate their business as part of their job. Then they, they will be able to come like anybody else who is a bona fide buyer can come but we're also looking further down the line to those uh, livestock sales um in august september october and those big breeding sales which which lead through to that meat supply chain for the next you know one two three years even jazz and how we can get some of those big big sales operating you know things like the kelso top sales which are massive events um so how can we work with the border union show and Scottish Government to make sure that we can we can get those happening. So first of all, economically for farm businesses who rely on that as a big opportunity to sell, but equally for all those other businesses who look at that that's the that's the, the area where they plan out their next year or two uh, breeding uh, plans to to supply the food chain in future. And this is the thing, isn't it? Because obviously livestock production is very much a long-term sort of endeavour. You know, I suppose we we still don't know, do we, what's going to happen with the virus 
and how long lockdown will will continue you know how long the public sector won't be buying so much meat how long the you know restaurants and cafes won't be buying it either you know on the sort of longer term scale like that do you have any sense of what might happen with prices with throughputs that kind of thing it's always look. It's always difficult to say, and, and especially now with uh, as you you know, just highlighted there some of the challenges there there might be. <clears throat> I think if we, well, I would hope if we can continue to see UK shoppers support you know UK and British produce in particular, whether they're buying it through their local supermarket or through their local butcher or wherever they're buying it from, but supporting that. And then as we start to see some of the fast food restaurants open again, you know, McDonald's, Burger King, people like that, who will use a lot of, you know, British meat uh, in their in their outlets, you, know, you would hope that um, that we would see a, a bit of a firming. Um, you know, you talked to QMS earlier. I mean, QMS did, um, did suggest that, um, you know, actual cattle numbers were probably down and that prime cattle supply for the rest of the year might be relatively tight. So possibly, Jez, in a supply-demand, there might be a bit of a balance there that might help to support prices back to the farm gate as we go through the rest of this year with what could be quite volatile demand and, and I suppose, in effect, quite unknown uh, demand. So that will be a real challenge for the wider supply chain, never mind what's happening at the farm gate. But as you and I know, the cattle that are there are the cattle that are there. We can't just magic sum up if um, if we need them. Absolutely. I mean, that, that sort of brings us on to the point of, of carcass balance, doesn't it? Um, which has obviously been an issue during this. Do you see that starting to, to shift at all? Well, I think uh, from what I can gather, carcass balance is starting to ease a little bit, but that is really through heavy, heavy promotional work in, in supermarkets in general, um, you know, big big reductions on price of steak and things like that. So while that's, while that's helpful at keeping the whole carcass moving, if you're devaluing those high-value cuts quite as you know, as significantly as they seem to be in some supermarkets, it is going to lead to challenges and, and pressure on price. Saying that, as we've seen this last week, you know, a lot of a lot of the abattoirs um sort of pushing for slightly higher pricing back to the farm gate. So, you know, that tells its own story. Maybe uh, maybe that that push of getting uh, some of those uh, getting that carcass balance right even though it's at reduced prices, has helped to um, to offer some stability and, and a little bit of an increase. What do you think this whole experience about carcass balance and what we eat, what what has it taught us about how we eat as a nation in terms, you know, and how we use or don't use our own livestock? It says a lot to me that when food service shut and people went back to pretty much retail in its entirety and retail, let's let's talk about um, you know butchers shops and and supermarkets in terms of red meat outlets that you know the, the, that we saw a, a, a big increase in in meat sales through there, which which does show to me that despite a lot of the chatter that's gone on over the last few years about dietary changes and things like that, that actually high quality high welfare, environmentally friendly, locally produced red meat still has a big, big place in the diets of the British population. And 
with that in mind, you know, we we shouldn't forget that. Now, there's always going to be challenges around about price. And, and when we come out the back of this, um, Jez, in terms of what the economics of the country might look like, then spending power uh, might be under pressure. But I think if, if anything, uh, what this should do is give, give British farmers, uh, uh, red meat farmers, a bit of confidence that actually their, their product is still desired by... Uh, you know, many, many people across this country. Thanks, Jez. Now I'm speaking to Victoria Vivian, who, as well as being vice president of the CLA, she's also owner of Trella Warren, which is a diversified rural farm business with self-catering cottages and leisure on the Lizard in Cornwall, a beautiful part of the world, Victoria. Your rural tourism business, like many, is on hold at the moment, isn't it? Can you see the green shoots of recovery on the horizon? Well, yes, what I'd like to say first is that when it's safe to do so, we're encouraging everyone to buy British in their holiday bookings. I'm looking out of my window at the moment at a spectacularly sunny spring day, and we do know that this beautiful countryside is the tonic that people need, you know, after the stress of lockdown. Walking, picnicking, barbecuing on the beach, albeit in a jumper, watching the sun going down. These are ideal, low-contact, low-pressure occupations. Good weather or not, I think we'll all be glad to get out, won't we? Do you get the feeling that there'll be a resurgence in the staycation as people shun holidays abroad and opt for holidaying in Britain? I hope so. I, uh, we're getting a lot of inquiries at the moment. And like all responsible businesses, I think we're saying, don't give us a deposit. Um, and we will trust you uh, to stick to the booking that you've made with us this summer in 2020. And, and we'll just ask for the money sort of a few days before you arrive. But let's keep our fingers crossed that that 4th of July date that the government gave us uh, will, in fact, be the case. And speaking of the government, Victoria, what do you think needs to be done? What can the government do to help this sector properly bounce back? Well, obviously, restarting an entire economy is, is extraordinarily complex. And businesses in our sector have been grateful for the help that they've had. But um, in the CLA paper about restarting the economy in rural areas, um, we've proposed, particularly for self-catering accommodation, that they help us with with detailed guidelines about self-certification. A self-certification system for self-catering would mean that um, our customers um, and our staff would feel have peace of mind. They'd feel safe about the, the holiday season ahead. And um, the kind of information we need is stuff about, I don't know, um, maybe disinfection times of, and uh, laundering standards. Lots of some details that will really give people confidence to work in self-catering uh, cottage industry and also to visit it. And is there anything from the, the cash flow side of things? I know you mentioned some some tax breaks. Do you think that's likely to happen? In the medium term... Um, we're really looking forward to the furlough system. It has been extended. We need some more details about how we could uh, sort of segue between having everybody on furlough, bringing people back part-time, and then bringing them back into the full-time economy of this area. Uh, There is an issue which the government's fully aware of, that we've had no cash flow this year yet at all. So it is quite a complex picture. And looking forward, I think um, 
there will be an issue if banks... I think the banks should be encouraged, perhaps, to extend um, the holiday that they've been offering to companies uh, to 12 months rather than six months. I have a sort of fear that that, that six-month um, uh, payment holiday will come to a shuddering stop in December, which is not a good time for self-catering businesses. And then in the very in sort of medium to long term, I think this is an opportunity to look again at the VAT system. Uh, we're not, uh, we're not uh, trading on a level playing field with the rest of Europe where tourist businesses um, only pay 10 or 12% VAT and we, of course, pay 20. So we'd like them to come back and have another look at that. Thanks to Liv for that report. I think getting rural tourism businesses back to a level playing field when it comes to VAT will be a really positive thing to emerge out of all of this, especially for a sector that has been so hard hit. To end the podcast, we come to a positive story, although you might not think it is right at the start. However, North Yorkshire farmer David Newhouse was recently taken into hospital after contracting COVID-19. But David, being the character he is, was more worried about leaving his wife Carol on her own at the farm in Malham to lamb the flock of 240 Sheviot mules. But we all know that farming is an industry that comes together at times of crisis. So cue David's friend and Herefordshire farmer Sam Stables, who came to the rescue and arranged for a livestock wagon to travel all the way to North Yorkshire, pick up half the flock and take them back to Herefordshire where they could be lambed and therefore ease the burden on the Newhouse family. It's a wonderful example of how the farming community steps up to the plate at times of hardship. Massive well done to Sam. And it sounds like David owes you a pint, perhaps in the Lister Arms in Malham, when the pubs reopen. So make sure you pick up a copy of this week's Farmer's Guardian or go to fginsight.com to read all about this heartwarming tale. Well, that's it for this week. And thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back next Tuesday, but from us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening, stay safe and goodbye for now.